right? Now, one of the questions that a lot of people ask about the Bible is, is it reliable, right? How do I know that what it says now is what it said uh, then, when it was originally written, whether 2,000 or 3,000 years ago, right? That's a long time. So is it the same now as it was then? How can we trust in it? Well, we're going to look at the, the historicity of it, which basically means um, how it interacts with history and how it aligns with other events in history and what it talks about in its own context and setting. And then we're going to talk about how the Bible came together as a canon, okay? So um, we're going to look at how uh, these books came to be the 66 books that we have, right? Because some people make comments like, well, people just pick and chose whatever they wanted and put it into this book, right? People sure have heard that before. Um, that's not the case. And so we'll look at how that's not the case a little bit this morning. So that's our morning this morning. Um, so when we look at the Bible and the historical claims of the Bible, what we see throughout the Old Testament is its firm setting inside of its historical context, where the book of Genesis, written by Moses in the wilderness after the people of Israel have come out from slavery, talks about things that are practiced only in the time frame of Moses' living in Egypt. Right? There are things that uh, go on inside of the history of, e of Egypt that Moses writes about, writing in the Old Testament here, things like shaving their heads before going before Pharaoh or the, the cups that they used for certain divination practices in Egypt that Moses writes about, that you couldn't just roll down to your local library and hop into the ancient Egyptian section because there was no libraries, right? You had to have been there, eyewitness accounts from the setting. Right? So people claiming that there is no, like, no person such as Moses, that these books in the, uh, of the Pentateuch or the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are written much, much later, talk about information that would have been completely unknown to later generations, that have only fairly recently, in the past few centuries, been discovered by Egyptologists in Egypt as practices that were going on at the time that Israel is claimed to have been in Egypt. Right? You have the city of Jericho, which people had uh, totally... Um, doubted Jericho's, um, the destruction of Jericho, the conquest of Jericho, the walls falling down, until excavations were done at the site of Jericho that found walls having fallen out. Now, the city of Jericho is an interesting place. It's built on a hill, and so to get up the hill, you have to build ramps up the hill. But what ends up happening with Israel in marching around the city, and on the, third, on the seventh day shouting, and the walls falling down, is that they fell outwards and created a ramp up the city, into the city, um, to conquer it. So you see the, um, the things that are talked about in the text of the Bible um, are things that we discover. One of the ones that's uh, wildly um, interesting is the fact that Nineveh, uh, talked about by Nahum, was doubted to actually be a real place because nobody had found it for thousands of years. And then in the 1800s, there was a guy who was going looking for the ancient city of Babylon along the Euphrates River and stumbled across some ancient ruins and began digging at this place only to come to find out that it was actually Nineveh, the, a city that had been lost for more than uh, 1,500 years. And just like Nahum had um, talked about in his prophecy in the book of Nahum, that Nineveh would be so badly destroyed by the invading nation that would come against them that it would be a lost city. So it was lost for more than 1,500 years. Right? So things like that um, that have continued in the past centuries to validate the historical claims of the Bible. Um, in here, there's pictures of this uh, inscription at, that was found at this ancient city of Dan in northern part of Israel. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, people doubted that David was actually a real person. Okay? That he, no, he did not exist, his family did not exist. It's all a fabricated story to tell this glorious and glamorous history of God's people. 
And then come to find this inscription at the city of Dan that records the house of David in an inscription, the oldest mention of David in all of human history. Right? And so the continual discoveries that are found um, related to the Bible do not go to any degree of disproving or invalidating the claims that are already made, but instead simply elevate the claims that are made in the Bible about itself. Right? So people like Jezebel or Ahab, these, um, this king and queen of Israel, doubted that they existed, only come to find signet rings with both of their names inscribed on them from the time that they were alive. Right? So these types of things that have been continually found, or um, this, uh, it, there's a picture here of this uh, obelisk, and the obelisk is about this tall, and on the top of the obelisk, is a picture of an Israelite king named Jehu coming and paying tribute to an Assyrian king that is mentioned in the Bible as having happened. So these um, continual interactions with the ancient Near East are very present. You have um, things like Hezekiah. Um, Hezekiah was, of course, a very important king in Judah's history. And signet rings or stamp seals with his name on it continually found in Jerusalem. It's one of the most commonly found names of any king in Jerusalem is Hezekiah. So there are all sorts of things that validate um, the Old Testament. And then when you come to something like the beginning of the book of Ezra or the end of Chronicles, it has this statement about Cyrus, this king of Persia, allowing Israel to go back to their land after they had been taken away from their land. And everybody's like, what kind of king would allow a foreign people to return to their land, build their temple, give them money to do it, and offer sacrifices on their altar to their God? What kind of king would do that? A pagan king, right? Completely absurd, total myth, fabrication. And then you come to find this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder, which had the exact words that are written in Chronicles and Ezra of what he claimed to be doing for Israel on the cylinder. And so the corroborating evidence of what we see in the Bible just simply goes to show that what many people doubted for hundreds and thousands of years into the modern era only seeks to be proved by what is discovered. Okay. For example, um, as well, so those are all Old Testament claims. What about the New Testament? Well, it's interesting to find out that Luke, who writes the book of Acts, is actually one of the most accurate historians of the ancient world. And that secular scholars will go to the book of Acts to discover things about the ancient Roman world that, are not be able, that you cannot learn anywhere else. So, for example, Luke writes, this is, it's just random, but Luke's write, Luke writes more about sailing on the Mediterranean than any other ancient author in the entire history of the Roman Empire. And so if you want to know about shipping lanes in the Roman Empire, you go to the book of Acts in the Bible, and that's how you find out about it, right? Um, Luke uses specific names, dates, times, places that other people don't talk about, or they generalize them, and Luke is incredibly specific. And so what is found is the more you try to test the historicity of the text of the Bible, the more you find it being validated by what is discovered around us. Okay, so this is, uh, it's just astounding, you guys. As far as a historical text goes, when you hold it up alongside of the same standards of any other historical text in human history, it will uh, pass every test that you might hold it against, right? There is nothing that uh, you can claim about it where it will disagree with what is said historically. And oftentimes what people find is that when they disagree with what the Bible says historically about certain events in history, they find that they are wrong as they discover more about history and archaeology. So it's like the, the, the claims are, are astounding. And what has been proven, essentially, is that what was thought to be myth and what was thought to be legend only turns out to be eyewitness accounts. As people write, 
who were actually there, who saw these things happen, and then are corroborated by external evidence from all the surrounding nations around them. So the reliability historically is astounding for the text. Not only that, but you get the prophetic claims. People like Isaiah, who talks about a man named Cyrus in chapter 44 of Isaiah, about 150 years before he is born. By name, mentions him. And then he comes along as the king of Persia and will conquer the, this Babylonian nation and deliver the people of Israel from their captivity. Okay? You have the book of Daniel in 600 BC as he talks about nations for the next 400 years that will rise up. And in the same way that each of them conquered the prior nation of the, Babel, or the Persians and the uh, Greeks and the Roman Empire and then finally Christ. In fact, in Daniel chapter 11, his prophecies are so strikingly accurate, save mentioning any names, that people have said it had to be written after the fact because there's no way that you could know this much about historical events prior to their happening. Okay? So the, the claims on the text about itself um, are amazing. Not only that, but you have people like David who is prophesying the crucifixion of Christ 900 years before it happens, explicitly in the text. Psalm 22, written by David about 1,000 years before Jesus, not about 900, right? Or you have Isaiah, again, who's talking and prophesying 700 years before Jesus comes, giving explicit details about what will happen to him as a suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Or Zechariah, who is quoted by, uh, in the Gospel of John as having predicted the piercing of Jesus' side and the blood and the water flowing out from his side 600 years before Jesus comes. And so these explicit prophecies throughout that are then linked to exactly what happened in Jesus' life are absolutely amazing. So um, over and over, the claims of the Bible about itself um, only serve to validate what had already happened. One of the things then that many people today doubt is, will Jesus come back? And we can all say, yes, sure, we believe that Jesus will come back, but why? Well, how can you say that you know Jesus will come back? Well, when you look at all of the prophecies that God fulfilled throughout the history of Israel, things that were spoken a thousand years before they took place, 500 years, the accuracy of biblical prophecy, to look at the prophetic um, mentions of Christ's return, those are really the only prophecies left in the Bible to be fulfilled. There's hardly anything else that people cannot find fulfillments for. In fact, there's a book I have called the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, and this guy went through every instance of prophecy in the entire Bible and he's like, okay, you can find historical fulfillments for every single thing that's talked about in all of the Bible, except for the return of Christ, because it hasn't happened yet. And if all of those other things are true, then how much more should we rely upon the return of Christ happening physically the way the Bible talks about it, right? So the, the evidence for it, the evidence for it is astounding, okay? So simply to say, like, there, there's just so much ground to stand on, and anybody who doubts um, the ground or thinks that it's shaky, has not spent the time in it. Most of the time, um, people that are um, claimed to know the most actually know the least about the Bible um, and don't spend as much time in it. So um, when we look then at the Bible and how it came together, the canon of Scripture, right? the canon, um, the word canon simply means something that's a collection of authoritative books um, and the standard for that community. Okay, so when we look at the canon of Scripture, um, we trust that the collection of scripture that we have are an inspired group of writings. So we're going to look at the Old Testament and the New Testament as what they are, as this inspired group of writings. Well, what does it mean when we talk about something being inspired? 
Okay, first of all, it does, um, what it means is that this is not man's wisdom, right? But this is the word of God, right? We trust that it has come from God and that he is the one who has passed it on to us. It's an understanding of who he is, his wisdom, and his instructions for life. And that it is God's word given to man, which describes man's relationship to God from God's perspective, okay? Another very important statement about the scriptures. It is not our perspective on our relationship with God, but it's God's desires for our relationship with him, okay? Very, very important. And it is history from his viewpoint and humanity from his viewpoint, okay? So what you will find is that the Bible doesn't always talk about the things you want it to talk about, okay? Newsflash, there's no dinosaurs in the Bible. Sorry, guys. What happened to them? Bible's not going to tell you, okay? Um, the Bible's going to tell you what is important for our relationship in walking with God throughout history. And that's why the, the Old Testament is this dramatic story of God's relationship with his people for a thousand years, right? That shows God's character, shows God's uh, relationship with his people. So when we talk about the scriptures being inspired by God, what do we mean by that? Does it mean that the Holy Spirit came and possessed somebody until they couldn't control themselves and they just wrote letters or penned scripture in the Bible? No. That's what um, Muslims believe about the Quran, that it is the direct word from God. Christians do not believe that about the Bible. Okay? What Christians believe about the Bible is that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the guidance of the Spirit, that they were inspired and led by the Spirit of God to write the scriptures, which is why the books are so different. And why God didn't just come down and fill the mind of a man to put words on a page, but used the personality of each individual as they penned their letters, okay? It shows the faithfulness and the relationship with man that God desires. That he's not just about controlling them, he's about working with them, okay? And the, I mean, the astounding thing is the continuity that goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation, of people that didn't know that each other were writing at the same time or didn't have access to each other's writings at all times and yet write the same things. And that there is no discontinuity between the story over the course of 1,500 years. Okay, do you know 1,500 years the Roman Empire is still around? If you go back 1,500 years. Middle Ages haven't even happened yet. Okay, and think between that time and now, the continuity of the story that is unbreakable is astounding. It's absolutely amazing. So these authors wrote using their culture and their perspective at the time. Okay, so that's a really important point is that the Bible is not written into a vacuum. It's not written into a cultureless society that just applies into any given circumstance. Knowing the culture that people are writing from is incredibly important, right? The slang that we use today is not the slang our parents used, Okay. And the Bible will use language and use it in such a way that is different from the way that we use things today. Okay, so the culture that it is written into, the time it's written into, is appropriate for the people writing it, which is important because as you come to the scriptures, it'll be confusing sometimes. And knowing that it's written in a certain period of history is incredibly important. Okay, so the Old Testament canon, Genesis through Malachi, 39 books, follows the, primarily follows the single family of Israel. Okay, from Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 down all the way through Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Um, it's written over the span of about a thousand years with 35 different authors. Okay, so a very long period of time, many variety of different people contributing to this work. 
Um, the work of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, two different languages. Um, Aramaic um, is kind of a sister language to Hebrew, but was primarily like English is today. So English, you can go anywhere in the world and someone speaks English. Or you can find somebody somewhere that speaks English. Aramaic is the same kind of thing. It's like anybody speaks it. It's the trade language of the day. Um, and the uh, Old Testament, as we have it, written in Hebrew and Aramaic, was not the way that Paul and Jesus and Peter read the Old Testament. Okay? Jesus wasn't sitting around reading the Hebrew Old Testament. He was probably reading the Greek New Te- Old Testament. Okay? And the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament happened about 250 years before Jesus was born. Okay? And that is the primary thing that the Old Testament authors, or the New Testament authors are using, is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was um, done in Egypt about 200 years before Jesus. And that gets us then into the New Testament canon, 27 books from Matthew to Revelation, primarily the content concerned with the witness of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Old Testament, primarily the story of Israel, New Testament, primarily the witness of Jesus Christ for the church, okay? So the New Testament is not necessarily written as an evangelistic tool. The New Testament is written as a testimony for the church to know what they believe, right? So then that... Uh, empowers them to go out and to be able to share it with other people. Just like we talked about last week, right, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, that we are to go to make disciples of all nations. And we do that by knowing what Jesus has said and teaching others to obey the same things. Okay, so the New Testament's primarily for that purpose, written over the span of about 50 years and written in Greek. So Greek is the common trade language of that day. Um, It is the language that everybody was spoken. It's a language that um, was common. In fact, for a long time, people thought that uh, the New Testament was written in a heavenly Greek because it was so different from the ancient Greek of like Aristotle and Plato. Um, Only come to find out that everybody was writing in this exact form of Greek and it was just a simplified form, right? It's an easy way for everybody to understand, right? And in the same way that God desires that everybody has the word of God before them, so the Bible was written in an easy way for everybody to understand when it was written. Okay. So for the Old Testament, there's various criteria that qualified books to be included in the Old Testament. Okay. So how do we get the 39 books that we have right now presently in the Old Testament? Well, there's certain criteria. One of the first criteria was that it had to be an accurate recording of historical events of the nation of Israel. Okay. So things that are dramatized, things that are theorized were not included in the Old Testament canon. Things that um, were hyperbolized were not included um, in the Old Testament canon, when they were um, doing so to distort the truth. They had to be written down by the people who the Spirit of God came upon or recognized that it had come upon. And so mostly, oh thanks, that's, uh, mostly that's the prophets. So the prophets are the primary writers of the Old Testament. They are the ones who are recording the words of God for the people of God. And as they wrote down these words, the process of the integrity of the Old Testament is amazing. Because what they would do as they wrote down the scrolls, is that they had counted every single word on the page. They knew where every word was, where every letter was. The, in the Old Testament, the old writing style, there's no vowels in Hebrew. It's just a string of consonants. There's no spaces between the words. It's just one block of text. Okay? And so you have this giant scroll, and it's just a bunch of consonants. And you know how many letters are on each page of papyrus. You know the exact middle letter of the entire book. And so what they would do is they would, they would have all that stuff written down and recorded for every book. And as they're then writing and copying the scroll, if there was one error as they got to their halfway point in the book, they would scrap the whole thing, burn it, and start over. Because they did not want to distort God's word. 
after a scroll got really old and they had copied down new copies of it, what did they do with the old ones? Out of reverence for the word of God, they would bury them in the ground and they wouldn't tell anybody where they are. So for a really long time, we had no idea uh, about really old Old Testament manuscripts. Our oldest one was only about a thousand years old, which is pretty recent considering ancient writings. Okay, so we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But that's the process. That's how they would pen things down. So the first writings that came from the Old Testament are the covenant, the words of God given to Israel at Mount Sinai. After that, the collection of the whole uh, Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy, came to be the first collection of Scripture for the Old Testament coming together. The next was Joshua, as Joshua passed on to that next generation, and then on into the prophets as they recorded for the kings in the history of Israel. So the Old Testament was primarily put together by the prophets of the Old Testament. And the whole Old Testament isn't just a history book. It's a story of God's relationship with his people in obedience to their covenant. Okay, In their faithful relationship, or actually in most cases, their unfaithful relationship to Yahweh. Okay, that is the, that's the whole story of the Old Testament and what it is primarily about. So after the book of Malachi there's a recognition of a period of silence of about 400 years where there was no prophet who came. Nobody who spoke on behalf of God and the whole nation recognized that there was nobody bringing the authoritative word of God spoken or written. And then after that point, um, that was when the Old Testament began to come together. That's when they began to put everything together as it was. Now, were there other things been, being written down? Yes, you have things like the book of Maccabees, right? the intertestamental books, things that happened between Malachi and Matthew that are written about the history of Israel, okay? And then, of course, as you mentioned, it gets translated into Greek um, about 200 years before Jesus. So that's the coming together of the Old Testament canon for us. Um, and then we have the New Testament canon, okay? So we talking about then the, the New Testament canon comes together as 27 books of the Bible. Well, what qualifies books to be put into the New Testament? Because there's so many other things that are written, about the New Testament. So many other people that contributed things or that wrote things down. Even Paul talks about things that he wrote that are not included in the New Testament. So what qualifies things to be in the New Testament? Why do we have what we have? Why do we take this to be the authoritative word of God? Okay. Well, the reason for writing these books primarily was to give a testimony of Jesus, as I mentioned. The Gospels themselves are primarily for the church. The Gospels are primarily for the body of Christ to know what Jesus has said and what he did to preserve the apostles' testimony, those who were eyewitnesses to these events. And that's what Luke says in the beginning of his gospel. I interviewed many, many, many eyewitnesses to come to what I've come to. Right? Remember last week we talked about the 500 people who had seen Jesus resurrected from the dead. Okay? These are the kind of people that Luke was talking to, he was asking about. Okay? And a lot of it was to combat false teaching about who Jesus was because what begins to happen is that as soon as the truth is revealed, lies begin to come. Because the enemy does not want people to come to Jesus, right? And so distortion of truth, false teaching, begins to invade the church dramatically in the early centuries of the church. And the collection of the books of the New Testament are primarily brought together to combat false teaching, right? To establish the church on what they believe, okay? The epistles themselves, the letters from Romans all the way through Revelation, are written to... Uh, give the church a discipleship instruction book, basically. That's why they're brought together, to give the discipleship instruction book for the church. And it's no wonder then that as Christians today, most Christians will spend 90% of their Bible reading in the epistles, Romans through Revelation. 
Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but being aware of the rest of the story is important. So did the New Testament authors recognize they were writing Scripture? When Paul is writing his letters, does he recognize that he's writing something that is inspired by the Holy Spirit? And the simple answer is yes. The way he writes, the way he talks, he recognizes that he does have commands from God. Um, when he writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, I am writing to you a command of the Lord. Okay? So he recognizes there is an authority on what he is writing. Peter also recognizes that Paul is writing scripture, where he will say in first, uh, 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, talking about, um, talking about distorted teaching, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters. There are some things in them, hard to understand, yep, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So in that statement, Peter puts Paul's writings on par with the Old Testament. That's a bold claim to be making while he's still alive. Okay, so, but there's a recognition, there's an understanding of inspiration in these works. Okay, so that is, that's what they're thinking about. Or um, Paul, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Okay, sure, I know that's an Old Testament. Obviously scripture, Paul took that to be scripture. And then he goes on to say, and the laborer deserves to be paid, which is a quote from Jesus out of the book of Luke. And so he is then attributing the standard of scripture, the same as Deuteronomy for the whole Jewish nation, to the book of Luke for the church, which is an astounding claim to make considering the fact that Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Okay, it is, it's, an, it's a huge statement to make. So the, then the authority then that gave um, the New Testament canon coming together was primarily because of the divine inspiration and direction of the Holy Spirit. They recognized there is something divinely inspired and directed by the Spirit of God upon those who are writing these books. Okay, and the other thing that was prim of primary importance was that these people had to have either been a disciple of Jesus or had been associated strongly with a disciple of Jesus. Okay? So they did not accept writings from people who were not. Okay? If there was not some relationship with them to Jesus. Now, one of the really unique things about Jesus is he doesn't write anything. Okay? None of what we have is what Jesus wrote. Okay? When you consider other leaders throughout history, and the fact that religious movements have been primarily founded upon what they have written... And then to think about Christianity and be primarily founded upon what Jesus has said and that he did not write anything, it's, it's amazing, right? Um, that these men and women were willing to die for the truth that had been spoken to them. Okay. Um, nobody dies for a lie, you know. That's the, that is one of the boldest claims about the apostles is that the fact that 11 of them are martyred, or sorry, 10 out of the 11 remaining after Judas are martyred, that that many men would not die for a lie. And then you get into the middle of the first century and you have hundreds of Christians going to their grave by the hand of Nero. Um, so looking at the New Testament then, you have Matthew, who is an apostle of Jesus. And then you have John, writes the book of John. He's an apostle of Jesus. He writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation as well. And James, um, who's a brother of Jesus, right? By half-blood, brother of Jesus. Same with Jude, who's also a half-brother um, half of Jesus, okay? And then Peter, who's a disciple of Jesus, writes first, second, Peter. Now, the rest of the books are not written by disciples, okay? 
And the interesting thing is that Paul, who was not a disciple of Jesus, writes the most books of any of them in the New Testament. Okay. Now, Paul had been a staunch persecutor of the church. Okay. He was chasing people to foreign cities, hunting Christians down. And he believed that what he was doing was the right thing to do. Because in the Old Testament, when somebody was distorting the picture of God and um, perverting the truth of the covenant that God had made with his people, zeal for God looked like violence. Everybody who is claimed as being zealous for Yahweh has always been violent. Okay, So Paul, just in like kind, he says, I am zealous for God. I'm zealous that his covenant would be maintained in purity and that these heretics would be stomped out. And it is on his pursuit of violent persecution of the church where he's encountered by Jesus on the road to Damascus. Right? And it's from that moment that he's made blind for three days. Is that inside of our paradigm for meeting Jesus? I don't know if anybody in this room, if you guys met Jesus and you were blind for three days, people would be like, man, I'm going to break the demonic powers over your life. Do we have the paradigm for God to encounter us in ways that make no sense? Okay. You know when Daniel had a prophetic vision, he was sick for three weeks? In bed. Like, man, break the spirit powers over your life, right? That's how it might be how we pray, but sometimes that's what God does. Paul, three days blind, could you imagine? And then he has eye problems the rest of his life. Was that from his encounter with Jesus? He's seen more miracles than any other person in the New Testament except for Jesus and still has eye problems his entire life. After an encounter on the road to Damascus where he was blind for three days. Crazy, right? His apostolic calling by Christ on the road to Damascus in person is confirmed by the other apostles. So the other 12 look at him and say, yes, we affirm the authority that Jesus has given to you. And so he goes out and Paul is the most prolific church planter in the first century. Okay. Now, the thing about Paul is that he was not just some random podunk guy who had no education and just came out of the sticks, and Jesus was like, I choose you, Paul, like a Pokemon, right? <laughs> Paul was trained up in all of the wisdom of his people. He was a zealous Pharisee, which to us means hypocrite, but to Paul meant most obedient person to the law all around, right? The Pharisees were the most honored people in Israel. And probably people suggest that actually the reason Jesus talks to the Pharisees more than to anybody else is because they're the closest to what he believes. And that's why he spends the most time talking to them, because they're so close to the kingdom. And what you find in the book of Acts is that so many Pharisees come to faith, including Paul. And Paul would, if Paul, people claim if Paul didn't meet Jesus, he probably would have become the most important Jewish teacher in all of Jewish history. He was leading, he was advancing, he was above everybody of his age. And that's, Jesus saves him. He says, I'm going to use you, right? And so he writes a, the most books in the New Testament, right? And he is going to be the one that gives a lot of the church the paradigm for what we follow as far as day-to-day living as the church, what we value, what we do, how we walk out the gospel, what we believe about ourselves. In fact, Paul writes more about Christian identity than anybody else in the New Testament, how you're to think about yourself and what you're to believe about yourself, right? <clears throat> but that doesn't mean that everything he writes is easy, like we wrote, uh, read in uh, Peter's writing. Sometimes the things he writes are hard to understand, and that's okay. Um, it just takes a little bit more time. 
The book of Mark then, um, Mark is not a disciple of Jesus, but Mark is a translator of Peter, right? Peter was preaching the gospel in Rome and he needed somebody to help him out. He didn't speak Latin very well. And so Mark comes along and helps him to translate the gospel, right? And so a lot of what Mark writes is the eyewitness account of Peter, right? Now, you guys know after you spend enough time with someone, you can pretty much tell their stories, right? And if Mark is there repeating and translating all the stories of Peter, his gospel is going to be the gospel of Peter, right? And so he writes it down uh, for the church as Peter's gospel um, and widely accepted as, as that. Luke is not an apostle, right? Luke is some is one of these random guys who gets saved. But Luke, like we mentioned, is one of the most important writers in the whole New Testament because he is an incredibly accurate historian. Right? Luke doesn't just write um, some fabricated events, but he is accurate down to the T. In fact, things that people had doubted about history are validated in Luke's writings. And Luke writes more content in the New Testament than any other person. Why is that astounding? Because Luke is a Gentile. He's the only Gentile author in the whole Bible. Okay? He's the only non-Jewish writer. And he writes more of the New Testament than anybody else. Okay? So the, the biggest contributor, right? That's huge. That's the power of the gospel, right? To, for all people everywhere, right? And so Luke writes this amazing, these amazing works of Luke and Acts, um, which would have been I mean, it's, it's astounding. I mean, we could go through all the details of it, and it would just blow your mind. Um, but basically, he writes, he's a traveling companion of Paul. He's associated with Paul throughout all of his ministry. And Luke is one of his, Paul's closest companions. And Luke writes then on behalf of Paul. And some people will say that Luke's gospel, the gospel that Luke writes, was probably the one that Paul preached. Okay? And that is Luke writing then off of his eyewitness accounts, and then what Paul was preaching to people as he went out and planted churches. Okay. Um, Jude then is this really small book. He's a brother of Jesus. Um, one of the last books in the New Testament that's brought into the canon. Yeah, I just need to check my time. All right. So <clears throat> Jude is one of the last books brought into the New Testament canon because he quotes from extra biblical sources a lot. He uses, quotes from the book of Enoch. Now, if he quotes from the book of Enoch, should we take the book of Enoch to be authoritative? No. Okay. Just because a biblical author quotes from something else doesn't mean that is authoritative, okay? You know, when we want to explain Christianity and Christian thinking and belief, we use C.S. Lewis a lot, right? Love his quotes, really smart dude, super helpful. Is he authoritative? No, but he's really helpful in understanding certain things, okay? So in the New Testament, there's going to be a lot of quotes from other people outside of the scriptures. In fact, there's going to be quotes from Greek philosophers, but that does not make them authoritative. It's used as an exemplary quote, okay, to give evidence for what the author is trying to speak about. Now, the book of Hebrews is a bit of a conundrum, this dramatically complex book, absolutely amazing. But no one knows who it's written by. It came into the canon under Paul, but nobody thinks it's Paul today, and there's a lot of good reasons to think it's not Paul. But the book gives us more about Jesus' fulfillment of the Old Covenant than all the rest of the books of the Old New Testament combined. Okay. The way that he brought fulfillment to what God had been doing with Israel throughout all of their history. And so it gives us a ton of context for what God has been doing um, in Israel's history. So that's how the, the Bible came together. Now, why didn't we add anything after those books? Because by the end of the first century, you have this guy named Clement of Rome, who's the bishop in the city of Rome, and he writes and says, 
He's writing letters to the churches. And if you read his writing, you're like, man, that sounds like the New Testament. When I read it, I was like, man, blown away. Like, this sounds like the New Testament. But he writes, and he says, I am not an apostle. My writings are not scripture. Okay? He makes the bold claim. And then you have another bishop, another church leader, writing. And he's writing a 1,000 miles away at the other end of the Mediterranean. And he writes, I am not an apostle. My writings are not scripture. Okay, so they recognize there is a difference in what they are communicating to the church than what had been communicated to the church prior to them. Okay, so the generation of apostolic authority is recognized as having ended with the apostles in the first century, and thus the authority of writing scripture has also ended. Now, the forming of the Bible was not done by people picking and choosing books out of a handful of books. What ended up happening is that the letters would circulate around. Okay, so Paul wrote one copy of Romans. And then it would go to the city of Rome, and they would copy it down themselves, and then they would send it on to the next city, and they would copy it down themselves, and then send it to the next city, and next city, next city, until it's all over the place. Okay, And the books that were received as authoritative were the ones taken in by all the churches, recognizing these are the books that we use to teach us the doctrine of Christ and how to walk with Jesus. Okay, So that's what they're following. And one of the main reasons, like I mentioned, is to combat false teaching. That is one of the biggest issues of the early centuries of Christianity, is false teaching. And so the Bible is put together for that. The earliest record of all of the books being one, um, in one letter written down where you have all Matthew through Revelation is a letter written in 372 by Athanasius at Easter, who is a church leader. And he, he says, these are the books the church takes as authoritative. 20 years later, there is a council meeting where they take those books and they say, we are not going to add anything more to this. This is it. And none of them don't come from an apostolic hand. So anything from the second century, anything from years after the apostles, none of that stuff is accepted. Okay? And we trust that what we have is what God has wanted us to have. And so when we read about other letters, when Paul wrote other letters, we trust that we are not supposed to have that letter. And even if we found it today, it would not be authoritative. Because it was not included in the original canon and was not important enough for the church to hold on to and pass on to later generations. Okay, so just because someone wrote something doesn't mean everything they wrote was inspired. The Bible went through many transitions. At the early stages of the church, the Bible was translated into so many different languages, hundreds and hundreds of languages throughout Europe and into North Africa, often to the Middle East. And then the, what began to happen is so much distortion of the text of the scripture began to happen that the, the leaders in Rome decided we're going to have one translation for everybody. Okay? And they translated it into Latin. Now, that makes a lot of sense when everybody speaks Latin, okay? But they sealed that as the only uh, permissible translation of Scripture is to, into Latin. And that persisted on for um, hundreds of years, almost 1,100 years until the time of Martin Luther, where only the religious elite spoke Latin and could read Latin. And he begins to read the Scriptures and realizes that what he is talking about and what people are teaching him are not what the Scriptures are saying because they don't understand the language anymore. And so he translates it into the common tongue of the people, which really kicks off the Reformation. Now, Martin Luther wasn't the one who was first preaching about the Reformation. There's a guy named John Huss who was already preaching before Martin Luther about the need for Scripture in the tongues of the people. And Martin Luther then does it. Right? He's the one who brings the, the Bible into German, and that kicks off the Reformation, and basically um, the Bible into uh, any language. Uh, and the acceptance of it. Okay, so 
And that gets us down to then today with over 50 languages uh, that the Bible's been translated into. Or, sorry, over 50 versions in English and over uh, 1,000 languages today um, where we're at today. Okay, so it is uh, astounding. And there's still a lot more to go. Um, still a lot more to go, but uh, it is an amazing step that has been made over that time, especially with all the um, limited tools that people have had in translating languages where they have to go and do it themselves. They have to write a dictionary themselves just to translate the Bible into someone's language. Crazy. So <clears throat> that's how the Bible came together. That's the historicity of the Bible. Well, how do we know that what it said then is what it says now? Okay. So when we take that, we want to examine it inside of a court of law to consider how does it stand up under the same tests that other, script, other um, texts would stand up? So when we look at this, we want to look at other ancient writings. So the Iliad is the um, most common ancient writing that we have. So a book written by a man named Homer back in ancient Greece. The Iliad partnered with the Odyssey. They're this kind of partner volumes of epic poems. Okay? It is the most common one that we have. 1,800 copies of this ancient script of the Iliad. Okay, now of all of these copies of the Iliad, the earliest one we have is 400 years after the initial writing. Now, you, that might sound like a long time. Like a book is written 400 years ago and the earliest copy you have is today. Sounds like a long time in the ancient world, really, really, really close, that's amazing, okay? The accuracy between all the copies combined is about 95% that they are consistent, which is also amazing, that no one has changed them or adjusted them or um, moved things around or anything like that. The next close is one written by Caesar himself about his wars in France. And that is, also has a ton, about 1,000 copies of this manuscript. These are about 300 years in nearness. Okay? When you get to the New Testament and you put it on the same scale as all of the other writings of the similar time, the New Testament far outweighs all of them. The New Testament has 7,000 pieces of manuscript evidence. Okay? The Iliad has less than 2,000. Okay? So the New Testament has seven, more than 7,000 pieces of manuscript evidence. And it is the earliest piece that we have is within 30 years of the writing of the script. Okay? It is, it's amazing right? what we have that then validates what is there. Now, are they all the same? No, they're not. Now, it would be shocking if it was the same. In fact, it would be a conspiracy if it was all the same. Okay. So how, how close are they? They're about 99.8% the same. Right? It is, there, there's only minor differences in them. And when you go into the study of the differences, which is called textual criticism, and you're assessing the text next to each other, all the changes that are made are accidental pronoun mistakes in the pronunciation of words. Because when they would copy down manuscripts, they wouldn't just have it right next to each other and try to copy it down. One person would read it, and 50 people would be copying it down. That was much easier and much faster to get it out to more people. Okay? So you make those kind of pronoun mistakes in the letters. Um, as far as other, other changes in the text, there is nothing in the um, variations of the text that we have that changes anything theologically. Okay? There is no theological doctrinal differences between the manuscripts. They are all consistent with each other. So it's absolutely amazing. Now, what about the Old Testament? Okay, the interesting thing, like I had mentioned, is the Old Testament, when they got worn out, they would just bury it in the ground out of honor for the scriptures, and they wouldn't tell anybody where it is. So actually today, sometimes we find really old manuscripts that were buried in the ground just randomly. 
People will be out digging in their, digging in their field or they'll, they'll destroy their house and be digging under their house to lay a new foundation and there's a scroll. And you're like, okay. You know, so that, that's the kind of thing that has happened. But um, the earliest full copy of the Old Testament was uh, only from a thousand years ago. It's called Codex Sinaiticus. Only from about a thousand years ago, which is really, really recent considering how old the Old Testament is which is what made the Dead Sea Scrolls such a prolific find when they were found back in the 1940s in these caves along the Dead Sea. And these manuscripts date from a thousand years before our oldest manuscript. Okay, so you imagine we have something from a thousand AD and then they find, this guy's like, this shepherd is throwing rocks into caves and then he hears a shattering in the cave and he goes, oh, there's something in there. And so he climbs up the wall and goes into the cave, and there's all sorts of scrolls inside of clay jars. Because it's so arid, nothing has rotted. And so they've got all these scrolls. And so the earliest you have is 1000 AD, and now you have things from 200 BC, right, in one find. And that's what validates it. So they begin to look at these scrolls and test them and come to find out that the Old Testament says the same thing with the same words, and the same consonants, it's all the exact same a thousand years earlier. And so the, the conversation of the integrity of the Old Testament was completely abolished at that time, right? There's just no question. It is, it's, has been consistent. It's always been consistent. And so what we bank on as Christians is not something unreliable. It's not something uninspired. It's not something unauthoritative. The truth that we stand upon is firmly founded historically, textually, critically, and we have nothing to doubt when it comes to the scriptures, okay? So just to give us some affirmation, um, for some of us, we might have said, yeah, I trust the scriptures, I believe what it says, and now you have a good reason to, okay? So um, that's our morning this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and we'll be done.